This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. I'm incredibly grateful to welcome on my brother, Makad Brooks. Makad and I met Uh, About a year ago, in the spring of 2019, on a transformational men's retreat in Sedona organized by our brother, Aubrey Marcus. After that first meeting, Makad has been a leader among our Sedona crew and was really the first to personally invite me to start to use my white privilege, and that's what it is, uh, for positive. And um, I'm grateful for that. Um, Believe it or not, it was the... Thanks, brother. Well, believe it or not, that was my first real step into this conversation after 48 years. So it's never too late, folks. But here's the thing. He didn't tell me what to do. He just asked me if I could hold him who was hurting in my heart and just let whatever emerges to lead the way. He also recommended that I start to educate myself by reading Ibram X. Kendi's book titled How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I did, thankfully. We'll be discussing this powerful and very insightful book during this episode. Makad has been prolific on social media during this incredibly challenging period that hit a tipping point with the murder of George Floyd. He's emerged as a voice of a generation, and he has been deeply informed. He's shown love, compassion, honesty, and he shared his deep pain very vulnerably. Um, he's also started the Church of Anti-Racism on Instagram, which is currently in the beginning stages of a 21-day anti-racist challenge. So I recommend you all join that, no matter if you start at day one, uh, and, and it's already over, so it's, it's worth your time. Now, to somewhat complete his bio, Makad, aside from this, he is a former Calvin Klein model. You're watching on um, YouTube, you'll see why. He's a longtime Hollywood actor starring as Jax in the upcoming Mortal Kombat, and he's an incredibly talented musician. But way beyond that, his voice is as important as any that I could wish to have on The Great Unlearn, especially when the very premise of this podcast is to bring awareness to our conditioning, our inherited beliefs, and to begin to unlearn them. And if you don't believe that racism and racist ideas need to be unlearned, and I'm really not sure what to tell you, except just stay with us. In large part, it's not your fault. It's in all of us. And the good news is we can change those ideas by becoming conscious of them, extracting them, replacing them with anti-racist ideas, and we can support anti-racist policies. In this episode, we're going to discuss, among other things, the problem with being colorblind. I've used that term in the past, and and you'll understand why. We're going to talk about what, what Makad means by the talk that black families have to have with their kids, sometimes as young as seven and eight years old. And if you're white like me, 
it's heartbreaking to even begin to think about this conversation. Now, I'm sure that will lead us into a discussion about police brutality, specifically the difference between being anti-police and being anti-police brutality. We'll discuss that as well. We'll also discuss his soon-to-be-launched podcast called New Agreements and why that name is so appropriate, especially in all the work he's doing right now and trying to bring things to the greater awareness. Um, I want to talk about what he's hoping to inspire with his church of anti-racism. So we're going to talk about this a whole bunch more. Now, you've heard me, you've heard enough from me. I'm honored and deeply grateful to welcome on my brother, Makad Brooks. I'm going to be here, brother. Thank you, Kyle, for having me, man. Appreciate it. <clears throat> my anti-racist yeah. brother. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. Um, no, you are. No, listen, listen, we. That's, that's, that's the whole thing. It's just about trying. That's what being anti-racist is. It's just about trying. If you're going to just stay, if, if you're going to like put your head in the sand, then, um, you know, you're supporting a system that is debilitating people's ability to have quality lives. Um, um, and, and protecting crippling oppression. So all you have to do is try. That's it. That's really it. <laughs> You're not good. No one's going to be perfect. No one's going to get this right. But we have to try. Yeah. It, well, I think the, the difficult thing, and I, I talked about it in the intro there, is that um, I think a lot of times uh, being white, um, you know the narrative. Well, no one wants to hear from a white guy. No one wants to hear from a, you know, someone of privilege. And Well, actually, yes. that's... It's a voice that, that's been silent that is, has needed to be heard. But here's the thing. Who told you that? Right, no one. Right. Matter, no fact, one matter of fact, we've been saying the opposite, bro. We've been saying the opposite for 100 years. Like, please speak up. Please speak up for it. Yeah. It's, it's, they, they put it into your head that it's not your place. They put it into your head. Here's the thing. Where would we be as a country? Where would we be as a country if we hadn't made philosophers into cotton pickers? Where would we be as a country if we hadn't made doctors and, and thought leaders into tobacco planters? Where would we be? Where, where would we be if we had 15% of the population being as productive um, as they possibly could be without a crippling system of oppression stopping that growth? Where would we be? Like, I mean, <laughs> imagine that country if everybody was able, was given the chance to optimize their own potential without um, the impediments of, of oppression. And, and I, I want to make that distinction. Anti-racism is not about curing racism. That, that may never happen, right? That's a, that's a philosophical, ideological belief. What our mission is, is to dismantle oppression and actually ask the question that we haven't asked ourselves in 500 years should systems of crippling oppression or should systems of oppression at all continue to exist and what sort of consciousness are we in if we think that they should should we be asking the people who are trying to protect the oppression questions black lives matter you know people can argue with the subtle nuances of, of the syntax all day. They can argue with what the meaning is all day. 
They never ask. Those people don't ask what the meaning is. So the, I'll tell you. So if somebody I just asks, gotta say, little, let's share that yeah. thing. If, if anybody wanted to ever ask instead of argue, the black person in America is not fighting for the black person in America. They're fighting for the the idea that America exists at all. They're fighting for the idea of democracy. They're fighting for the idea of kindness and fairness and repair in a community that's been decimated by policies, delivery systems, enforcement, ideas, agreements, structures, (laughs) everything. Everything. And if you can't hear me say that, then that just means that you um, think that your opinion, even though it's outside of the scope of oppression, is just as valid as the person who's being oppressed. And you should examine that. If you can't hear an oppressed person's voice, if you can't hear their ancestors screaming through their skin in the form of a riot or a fire, if you can't hear that cry for help, then it means you're just not trying to. And then I think that we should be asking those people questions. Not, not so much, what do you mean by Black Lives Matter or like all lives matter? Yes, we know they do, <clears throat> but this country has never valued black lives. And it's not just, not just you know, uh, um, the, the, the actual matter of the human being, the life, but it is the education of that human being. It is the aggrandizement of that human being. It is building wealth. It is um, um, redlining is, is something that they did in Europe with ethnic groups, but they called it ghettoization. They would trap them in areas and, and not, not allow them to leave with it. Yeah, explain um, that a little bit for the audience. So, re- so it, it, it's it's um, it's ghettoization. So basically, like in the ghettos in in the 20th century in Europe, you had different ethnic groups that were that weren't that were huddled there and weren't really allowed to leave, right? And how were, how how were they not allowed to leave? By a system of laws and policies and enforcement that were in place. Now. Redlining in America uh, was was our version of the ghettoization of, of the 19th and 20th century in Europe, and what that meant what that meant was that you weren't if you were a black person, there were certain areas that you weren't allowed to move into. Doesn't matter how much money you had, you couldn't move into those areas. Those areas um, received less funding from public funding. Um, those areas. Um, the tax, the, the taxes that went back into those areas were proportionate to the taxes that were paid, right? And because of the, the uh, unfair job markets and the unfair education, you couldn't get, you know, there, there was there was less wealth in the black community. And because there was less wealth in the black community, and then because there was less wealth in the uh, or less development in the in the areas in which blacks were allowed by law to live in, segregation—that's what that is. Uh, we all know what that is. So you couldn't go to the bank and say, hey, my property value um, uh, can can be my collateral. My my high salary can be my collateral. So we couldn't get loans. Couldn't get small business loans. Couldn't get, you know, small business loans started going to black people in the 1980s for the first time. For the first time. 
I was born in 1980. So like, you think you got to think about that. Like most people who are, who, who don't understand black lives matter or they don't understand, or they want to say all lives matter. It's, it's just a misunderstanding or an overlooking of history and history. It's very important because it's why we are where we are today. So there's been a lot of systems in place that have, um, withheld options and withheld and just enforced hegemony. And um, it's, it's hard to describe because it's, it's, it's people, I know people get tired of hearing it, but we get tired of saying it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah. yeah and, right. and it's also like, it's, it's also so hard to describe because I mean, if I tell you the truth, like the, the honest to God truth is that, Ever since, ever since the first black person stepped foot in America, they, I mean, they were a hostage. 1619, uh, uh, a pirate ship called the White Lion. We showed up on pirate ships. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's how we started. Right? We were stolen cargo. And um, when you start off with that sort of agreement, when a country forces you or uh, the, the, the people who are in charge of the colonies force you into this agreement and force your children and your descendants into an agreement, that does not benefit you. In fact, um, in that agreement, there is population control by way of murder or public execution, as you saw with George Floyd. It wasn't a murder. That was a public execution. Why? Make an example? That seemed to me to be a very direct message to two communities. One, the white supremacy community that we have this country and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And one to the black community is we have your country and there's nothing you can do about it. And we have been living like that for four, over 400 years. It, it seems to be ramping up. It seems to be worse. It seems to be um, it, it's hard it's hard trying to discuss the severity of the situation with, diff, with different ethnic groups because every every ethnic group um, and as they should has has proprietorship over the atrocities that have been committed against um, Native Americans use genocide um, the Jewish brothers and sisters use Holocaust. The, um, the Armenian brothers and sisters use genocide. We don't have a word. Racism is not strong enough. Um, whatever you want to call it, it's been a humanitarian crisis. You want to say, okay, so you could even say slavery was one. After slavery, it's been a humanitarian crisis since 1860. Because we were property. My ancestors were property of other people's ancestors. And once you stop being property, you stop being valuable. So once you stop being valuable, what do you do with those people? You control them. You create policies to keep them out of places. You demonize their behavior. You scapegoat them for things that are wrong in society. You get, this, you get the ether of hatred 
surrounding them. So they live in a soup of unfairness and you, and you mute their voices. So no matter what they say, you don't believe them. They're untrusted. You, you paint them as untrustworthy. You paint them as takers. You paint them as freeloaders. You paint them as all these are criminals. And criminals is, is, is the worst one because when you see a man executed on camera in broad daylight, people still go, well, what did he do? So it's deep and it's, it's a sickness almost that we all have in our heads, including me, um, because we were all raised in this racist container that we call a country. And there's nothing wrong with admitting to yourself, like, shit, I'm a little racist. I, I have racial bias. I have racial bias. You know why? Because we all do. We all do. Um, um, we, we grew up in a place that... We, <laughs> Our, our, our founding fathers were, were slave traders and genociders. We can't make moral examples of them. We wouldn't today. Would we, would we make moral examples of human traffickers and genociders? I don't think so. I don't think that we would. I think we're better people than that. So any policies that came out of um, that low level of consciousness Need, need to be re-examined for the people that are um, newly considered to be citizens, right? So we, we've never gotten the benefit of the doubt when it came to human rights. We still don't, we still don't have human rights uh, by law. We have civil rights, which are, which are rarely enforced. Yes, yeah, so explain the do, difference. Civil rights, can you just be civil? <laughs> can you be civil, please? Right? Like, civility? Like, so civil, civil has to do with civics, which, which is like the balance of, of, of political structures and sociological structures, meaning that you get the right to vote or the right to, or uh, 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 going to um, a better school if it's in your neighborhood. It used to be that you couldn't even go to that school if it was close to you because it was, it was off limits to you. Um, the chance of building wealth or aggrandizement, um, just basic um, ways that people uh, take for granted of interacting with their own society, those were withheld from us by law until 1965. But we still don't have human rights, which means you get third-degree murder for executing us in, in public which means you don't go to jail at all sometimes if it's not on camera. See what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, obviously the good fortune of, of having that, but how many are not? And I think we've seen that there, sure, we've there are ones that have caught on camera, but we're seeing a lot of these things and the way the, the police forces are set up that um, they're, they protect their brothers and they get away and in a lot of cases they get away with murder. And so before we get into that, cause I think it's important again, cause your mom wrote um, an article recently and she, she talked about, you know, we're not anti-police, we're anti-police brutality. And that is a right. huge distinction. And that changes. So many people want to say, I mean, I've been called anti-police by some of the stuff I've written in my newsletter. And it's like, 
that's changing the argument. That's changing there. That's the same thing they do with yeah. Colin Kaepernick. But if, I mean, here's the thing. There's a small distinction because police brutality is so ingrained in our police department. Because the history of policing is this. So obviously, everybody knows since before, prior to 1776, or before the war, I think the war ended in 1782 or something. So we had British soldiers uh, that, that were the, the crown's protectorate in the colonies, right? So after they left, we didn't have any police. We didn't have any laws. We had militias. Now, for things are pretty lawless in early, in early America. It was like the Wild West, but in the colonies. And the only thing that people thought was worth protecting was their property. What did property mean back then? My ancestors. Mm. So they deputized, so that you had you had the colony councils or whatever the case is, or basically like village councils at the time that would appoint deputies or magistrates, as they were called. And these magistrates would go around paying white citizens to police black people and police black lives. This started in the 1700s. Now, that, the, the mentality started 200 years before that, 300 years before that. But, and, and I want to get back to that point because it, it wasn't, it's not like this has been forever. This is, it's actually very new. Racism is extremely new to humanity. And it's extremely odd. And it's a very thinly veiled uh, failure of consciousness, actually. So it's very convenient for business. We'll get to that. But um, <clears throat> what, so what happened, the history of policing is this. So they would pay white citizens to police black lives. Police their, their, their spatial awareness, police their proximity to, to them, their proximity away from the plantation. Like my ancestors, if they left the plantation, they needed a hall pass, literally, like papers. And if you couldn't produce those papers, you could be killed. Kidnapped, tortured, whatever they wanted, a child could ask for those papers. If you were born free, and you were my ancestor, which mine were not, but if you happen to be, if you happen to look like me in 1840, and you were born free, you also had to have freedom papers, which could be stolen from you. Or any white person could say, that's a forgery. And it's only their eye and their word that could police your life. So that failed because people were too busy, right? And it was too much work. So they started um, these tiny militias and these, uh, these bounty hunters called slave catching. And all too often, if, if business was slow, they would just tear up somebody's freedom papers and kidnap them and put them on a plantation. Even people who were freed by their by their own masters or freed at, uh, in the master's will or whatever the case was, were put right back into slavery two years later, three years later, ten years later, because the slave catcher wanted to make money. Slave catchers became a private organization, the Pinkertons, so on and so forth. Um, keep moving. Pri private security. Private security forces. And then that became the police. No shit. I didn't know. So did not at, know that. At the core of the police is policing, catching, 
discrediting um, kidnapping and degrading black lives at the very core, at its center, at its nature. And it's never not done that. It's never not done that. And it's the same type of mentality that we have in a police force um, from 1850 or 1840 or 1810 to 2020. These guys have less training training than hairdressers. That's a, that's, a, that's a true story. You need more training to hold a blow dryer than a gun. So what kind of people are we asking to put on that uniform and, and do that job, that, that very chronically stressful job, which, which keeps you in a constant state of fight or flight? You need to have a master's degree. You shouldn't be able to go to one week of training with your inherent racial bias or whatever bad ideas you have or your, sexis, your sexism or whatever the case is and then inflict and, 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 and interject your poison, your psychological poison with the power of your badge into society. That has to stop. So when you say, when my mother makes the distinction between police brutality and policing, in and of itself, these, these two things are one and the same in certain communities. And we're just trying to explain that we know that if you are not black or likely brown, that correlation seems so foreign. They're there to protect and serve. They might annoy you guys. Like, they might show up at the totally. party. Yeah, they might show up at the party and annoy you guys, or you get your speeding ticket, or da 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 But when I see a cop, I freeze. I, 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 you know, we all do. And we're like, fuck, my life might be over in five minutes. And that's real. And, I, and I'm, listen, I'm not, I'm not from the hood. I don't live in the hood. I've done very well for myself. And I feel that way. Um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a class problem. It is, it is a aesthetic problem that we have. It's a consciousness problem that we have. Then my mother did write this article about um, um, the talk. That, that every black family has to have with their children. And it's, um, it's tough. I, I, actually made, I actually made that the, um, the anti-racist challenge for day three. For my, for my, I, I started a 21-day anti-racist challenge. And day three is, uh, and it's for everybody. It's for every race. So, like, because, once again, we're all in that racial, racially biased spectrum. And, yeah, because um, I want to talk about that as well, because I think that, uh, what I've found is, and again, the last two newsletters I put out, uh, by and large, very well received, but I've used anti-racist in the title both times, and I think it is such a charge for some people. Um, I would argue that it's because they have some real underlying racist ideas that um, they're not listening to what I'm saying. I'm owning my own racist ideas and trying to work through them, and and uh because you read the book so you, so you, you, understand, you read the book you understand yeah. what it is you understand what it is so so i want to really try to land that for people okay. who haven't read Easy. the book and i highly recommend reading how to be an anti-racist when you can finally get a copy because it's been sold out now but it's so easy it's, it's such an easy concept to understand so uh back to the point i was making we we are we, we live in a country 
that is a racist container. What does it mean that you're racist? That means you, that you definitely were affected by the racist ideas, the racist policies, the, race, the racist infrastructures, the racist politicians, the racist media, uh, everything that we've had that led up to this point right now. It may not feel like it's racist. It just kind of feels American. It just kind of feels like life. But that's because it doesn't affect you. It's racist. It's a, it's, it's a racist container. It's a racist container. So growing up in a racist container, you would have to be, you would have to have been homeschooled by like straight up hippies, never seen TV, never listened to music, never put like, never looked at a magazine, never interacted with the rest of the society, not to have one racist idea. So it's kind of, so Really, what, what what this is is it's 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 a it's a chance and an invitation to introspection, right? To look inside yourself and go, where do I have these racist ideas, and where do they come from? Because whatever preconceived notion that you have about people, you didn't you weren't born with those. You were born curious. Children are born curious of the world, and then society gives them answers. I'll give you one just just to maybe 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 make it a little easier for some people to touch too. Like, hey, when you when you're in college, was there a group of athletes, the lacrosse team, the hockey guys, whatever, that acted a particular quote unquote acted a particular way? Mm -hmm. And so you're just like, that's what these guys do. The you know, the Duke lacrosse team got, you know, right. obviously accused right. for for rape. Now People would say, well, that was part of their culture, right? So this is, so just to take it to a, just a different level for people that while the lacrosse players aren't technically a race group, it's the same underlying principles is that you take the behavior. And in that case, you know, maybe not a great example because they were exonerated, but the, you take the uh, behavior of an individual or a couple of individuals, and then you just paint that whole group that you put together and say, they're all like that. Well, the, the, I think the lacrosse example is, is, is flawed only, only because one, they weren't, they were exonerated. And two, if you have one, if you have a basketball team and one guy is molesting children on that team and the other 11 don't say anything, they're all wrong. Right. So that, so. I'm just it's, saying it's, the grouping. Right, hey, the hockey guys are a bunch of drunks and the this right, right, right. and the, it's, well, it's just let's, the let's, idea let's, that. Let's say the, the, the grouping, black people are lazy. No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. Like, so that, that, the, the, there's a grouping of that. Black people can dance. No, we can't. All of us. I can't dance. I mean, I can move. You can't? I can yeah. move. <laughs> I can move, but I can't dance. Dance? No, I don't. I, I, me and Will Smith cannot dance. We, there's two of us that can't dance. We can move. Um, white people are are uh, uh, what, what? Like for instance, like for instance, it, it works both ways. Can't dance. White people can't dance. White, white people, people can't jump. Dance. White people can't dance or jump. Well, there's plenty of examples of white people who can dance and who can jump. So you can't. Yeah. So it's the grouping. You're right. Absolutely, you cannot. Um, uh, racialized attributes. Well, you know what's so interesting? I, I the other a couple of weeks ago, I was watching Lance Lance's Thirty for Thirty, and on there, they start to describe 
the riders from the different countries. Oh, and the Italians are like this, and the Spaniards right. are like this, and right. the Portuguese are like this, and the Amer and I'm like, that's this. We and we just accept it. And it was the first yeah. time I had ever realized like that's the same thing with way yeah. different consequences. <clears throat> I'm not trying to equate it, but it's, know, the, but it's same the same thing time. that it. It's it. So we're just like, oh yeah, that's the Italians yeah. are a bunch of fucking fiery, and the Americans yeah. are crazy, and yeah. So, and here's the thing: there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing that as long as you know that's what you're doing, and you know that you're wrong, right? There's, listen, we're not anti-racist people are not asking you to change your beliefs like that. We're saying there's a system of crippling oppression that is supported by grouping people and supported by laws and systems that are. That are, that are causing a humanitarian crisis right under your nose. Literally, that's what, that's what this is. It's been that for a long time. It's been that for a well, long I, time. My, 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 my great-grandfather was killed by the NYPD in the 30s. Two of his children were killed by the NYPD. I had a, I had a great-aunt on the other side who had her fetus cut out of her body in the 40s in public. Her brother was hanged lynched and at a picnic for entertainment. So I want you to s just slow down for a second. And if anyone's listening to this on anything, but one time, like just, just pay attention because what you're saying, you're kind of, you're just, they're rolling off the tongue, but they're, they're, I don't want them to come across that way because each one of them, which I don't have to tell you, obviously, but I just want people, yeah. I want people to, 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 to try to connect to what you're saying. I want you to first listen to the anti-racist ideas and like give yourself a break and say, look, okay, now you're aware of it. Hopefully, if you haven't been, it's by and large, not your fault. Like, let's start to do something about it. Let's identify those ideas when they come in. Let's remove them and then and put in ideas where we stop grouping people together start to listen to the things that you're saying, whether it was back when you were talking about when they were redlining, what was happening there. Like the, these, there's a, there's, there's just a lot that we're going to be talking about today. And I just don't want this to be a typical podcast where people are just like, there's, I think it's important for us to slow down on this one for, for people. I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I guess, I guess I'll say it like this. So like, because it's so complex, because the system is so complex. So put it to you like this native American genocide. They didn't, the Americans at the time didn't just go around shooting Native Americans, right? They created systems that cornered them into certain pockets where they were easily hunted. They gave them smallpox blankets, which was chemical warfare. They, um, they, My, they, by the way, where I went to, where I went to college, Amherst College, was we we used to be called the Lord Jeffs, and they finally changed the name um, because he was one of those Genocide. men who did that. Yeah. And honestly, when I was in college, I'm like, it's just a, it's just the name. It's I again my ignorant white um, privilege. Like, it, it, here's the thing: I wouldn't even say white privilege is ignorant because it's not your fault. Well, and that it's no really. Here's the thing. The ignorance is your ancestors. The guilt is truly your ancestors. It's not even yours. You didn't create the system. <laughs> You're just benefiting from it. And no one's even asking you to stop benefiting from it. 
we're just asking, can it stop killing people? <laughs> can it stop hurting people? Can it? Can we start a repair? Can we somehow get to a place where the acknowledgement of black culture has been decimated by the policies uh, of certain people's ancestors? So that's that's really what it is. I wouldn't call it ignorance. I would call it unawareness. And 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 the thing about that is, well, how are you supposed to be aware when the system that was put into place was put into place to mute? my voice. It was put into place so that you wouldn't listen to my voice. You wouldn't value my voice in the way that you would value someone else's. And that is not, I don't really blame white people for that. That's not, I, I don't, I don't know a lot of us that do. Some, some, yeah, of course, some are extremely angry. Some people are extremely, truly angry. Never seen people this angry, frankly. Not, not even, like, it's scary. Like, I don't, I don't know what's next. Or they don't. Um, but you, you have to understand that that anger is coming from a place of, you know, 1865, Civil War got, Civil War won, or the Civil War was ended, and um, every black person in America was given 40 acres and a mule, or promised 40 acres and a mule, and, and, a, and a chance, almost like a two state solution chance to live by themselves without racism. Within six months time, the new president, who's a slave owner, rescinded the offer and started a campaign of burning, pillaging, kidnapping, and re-enslaving black people all across the South. And, ha and handing, land grabbing all the land that, that had been given to black people and giving it back to Confederacy. Um, and so in the early 1900s or late 1800s, uh, black people had, had built a, um, a city called Rosewood, uh, which was a, a very financially pro prosperous city. And Rosewood, uh, if you look it up, Rosewood suffered a, a horrible massacre. Um, you know, white, white people in the South at the time White supremacists. I, I'm, I'm going to separate white people from white supremacists because it's not. It's 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 it's, a, it's just a small sect. It's a sect, right? That are very aggressive and 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 have this have this mentality, same ideology as as um, you know the people who committed uh, the genocide against Native Americans. Same ideology as the people who committed and denied the Holocaust. It's the same ideology. You know, I don't know what you want to call them, but it's the same ideology. Um, and they. Uh, massacred enough people in Rosewood that uh, most of the, the, the men, women, and children um, were massacred. So the city was decimated and never came back. 1921, from 1899 to 1921, black people um, created their own Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it was quickly becoming as, as um, powerful and as prosperous as Wall Street. But due to segregation, um, we weren't allowed to play in the white economy. And so white people got mad who didn't know the law that we couldn't actually exchange in the markets, or <laughs> in the American market. We, we couldn't. It was against the law. So we created our own market. That market became extremely profitable. And then what did white supremacists do? They got airplanes and they bombed it from the sky. And they killed five, 400 people. 
men, women, and children, and kidnap the rest. So when you when you see the anger that people have a, a century later, a century later, it's because every single time you know black people have tried to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, which is what America is about, we've either been massacred, um, we've either had bombs dropped on us from the sky. Who had planes in 1921, bro? That was the Air Force. Think about that. That was the Air Force. There weren't a lot of private planes back then. And who and who had bombs? U.S. government denies it, but who 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 could it have been in 1921? Who would have allowed that to happen in 1921? Right? You got to think about the consorted effort to try to keep us in a certain place, and why? Why would you try to keep people in a certain place rather than allow them to help help the economy, help society? Well, ghettoization, redlining, keeping them in a place, same as you did the Native Americans, where they're easily hunted. I know that sounds crazy, or that sounds like paranoia. And there may be some paranoia in me because I've lived a traumatically, um, I, I, I and every black person in America has had a traumatic relationship with our country. But it's not paranoia. If you read history, you know history. So we just don't, let let, let, let me pose a question to people who are kind of on the fence. Where does crippling oppression lead? Where does it go? What's the end game of crippling oppression? not aggrandizement, it's not, it's not a community pulling themselves out of something because you're not allowing it. The, the, the laws are not allowing it. The enforcement is not allowing it. So it leads to some sort of peaceful negotiation out of that process in the form of repair. It leads to refugee status. It leads to It leads to genocide, or it leads to doing anything that you can do to stop that from happening. And I think that's where you're seeing Black America at. You can't put a Band-Aid on this. That we, 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 don't, we don't trust the Band-Aids anymore. <laughs> Being Black is, 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 is this constant, specific state of purgatory where you're stuck in between hopeless and hopeful. And every single time that you get a little more hope, you achieve something in your country, not, not white people, but white, the white supremacist policies and the white supremacist laws and the white supremacist enforcement, rip them from your fingers. And we're all, we're all out of faith. We have hope, but we're out of faith. And I think that's what people are, I think that's what America's seen. Is, is a people who have rightfully lost faith in that this is ever going to change. And um, that, that I think is, that's, that's new. 
My parents have never seen that. I've, I've never seen that. And that's new. And it's, it's not. There's healthy ways out of this. And there's other ways out of this. But I think that um, America has pushed us to a point where I had a friend commit suicide two, uh, a week and a half ago because of what racism has done in his life. Now, there's other people who handle it differently. I had a friend who checked herself into a mental institution. I, I've, I've been severely depressed, up and down. Um, and I, I get that way every, every time it's proven to us that our lives mean nothing. But it's a mental health concern. It, 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 it has always been one. And um, I think we, we are just at a breaking point where something's got to give. We, we, can't, we can't continue to live like this. And um, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope for the future, at least in my heart. Well, I think if if people don't have quite enough context for kind of what we're talking about, I think one one other thing I'd like to point to um, yeah. is the yeah. documentary Thirteenth um, on Netflix, which I think speaks to um, you know you gave a very compelling case for the almost to the the pre you know what happened with uh, the war on yeah. crime war on drugs and basically just continuing that pipeline of you know really black men into the prisons which have now become privatized and that's its own issue um i mean here's the thing what what, what, yeah, what are the prisons it is. it's do just an it's a an work for, for how much it money is work yeah well, and so then, and I noticed that they said that they basically started to figure out that they could farm the prisoners out, and so it just became like a, it's such an economy I'll put to you, now, I'll put to you which this is way. sickening. To it think is. About. There are more black men in prison than there were on the plantation. Many of those black men are put into prison at the age of thirteen or fourteen years old because we don't have human rights. So I bet you made some stupid mistakes when you're 14, 15 years old, right? Yeah, we all did. Yeah, we all did. Oh, God. Yeah. What if you were your age now and were in prison because of those mistakes? Here's something else that happened. It happened to my cousin. You get arrested. And to be black in America, you don't have to be, you don't have to do anything. You just get arrested. Like, I've been, I've been arrested many times. We call that kidnapping. You guys call it rescue. <laughs> true, true story. When you're driving, when you're driving down the street, you see a black guy get arrested, um, and you guys, you, the first thing that happens, I think, a lot of white people say is, "Oh, what did he do?" It, racist or not, whatever the case is, you're like, "Oh, he's getting arrested. Like he must have done something." Period. That's, people, people get arrested if they commit crime, right? 
black people, we drive down the street, we see another black person get arrested, we're like, shit, I hope that person makes it because they're getting kidnapped. And at the very least, at the very least, you got to pay five grand, ten grand to get out of it. So if you don't have the five grand, And I'm going to say, I, th- I feel like I read a stat that it's like 80-something percent of households right. don't so have, I think, $500. Exaggeration. Like, that's, a, that's if you get a lawyer. So, if you just want to pay bail out, normally 1000 bucks. So it's more than what most people have laying around, right? So I've got cousins who got arrested for loitering and then spent two years in jail without a trial because they couldn't make bail. Ugh. I'm glad you brought that up because that was, um, as I've been trying to educate myself, um, that's one of the areas that I think people, if they want to give their money, they want to support causes is to these bail funds. You're freeing, you're freeing that literally, hostages. Um, yeah, really, f- really. yeah, you're freeing hostages. Yeah. And they're, you know, if you don't, yeah. if you don't like they lose their, they lose their jobs. Um, yeah. because they have to show up at work. They don't have, you know, a, a boss no. that's like, oh, yeah, sure, it's, just show up And also, like, when you spend can. enough time in jail, you, you, um, you, you know, <laughs> you're, you're looked at as an inmate. And if you never got a trial, or never, got, never got convicted or anything, yeah. you're still an inmate. And I, Well, so I had a friend of mine, his episode will be out just prior to yours, a guy, uh, Luke Ryan, he was actually on a Netflix special. I don't know if you saw it called um, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. And so long, I'll get to the cut to the chase. There were basically two drug chemists at separate labs in Massachusetts that went rogue for different reasons. My friend Luke, he was my old college roommate. So Luke, no, Luke represented a, a couple of the guys who had, um, it really the woman was a, had become a drug addict, one of the drug chemists. And so there was a bunch of bad shit going on at the lab. Anyway, he was getting roadblocked left and right by um, the attorney general and because they wanted to squash everything, right? They only, that only happened to a couple of drug samples. It turns out it was almost 10 years worth. And because of his work, he got off, I want to say, over 10,000. He overturned over 10,000 drug convictions because the samples weren't done properly, which is an amazing story in itself. But he shared with me, he goes, yeah, these bail funds are really important because not only does the money stay with it, because if you give somebody $500 to bail them out of jail, you better believe Absolutely. they're going to show up at their court date. And so when they do that $500, because it's better, that $500 goes back to the fund. This is one of these causes that really can maintain, you know, I want to say one of the funds I saw, they had spent like, I don't know, $15 million and saved like 86,000 days of incarceration. You know, so it's, anyway, I think the bail fund, and, and I'll have links to that, or you can go to my website and you'll see some resources. I think the bail funds are a great way to, to kind of do that. Now, one of the things I did want to talk about, uh, a, a, a common response by, um, you know, people well-meaning and think they're saying the right thing and maybe do believe that they're colorblind, but the problem with saying that, and 
I mean, I, I can try to articulate it, but I would say it, or, or I'll, I'll hand I, I it think, off to you. I think you, the but... simplest way of, of, of <clears throat> describing why that is seen as problematic is because even if you are colorblind yourself, the system is not. So it's almost like saying, well, I'm not sexist. Yeah. Yeah, but your daughter can grow up and get raped by her boss. So do you want that system for your daughter? Is that cool with you? If so, cool. Then just not be sexist. That's cool. But you need to be anti-sexist so that your daughter won't get raped by her boss. So your daughter doesn't get sexually harassed or your wife doesn't get sexually harassed at work or by a cop or by blah, 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 blah. We, it's, it's, it's not about you. It's not, see, and that's, I think that's, that's the mistake that a lot of people make. Most people, there's a lot of love in this world. There's more love than there is hate. There's more, there's more people who are frightened and don't know where to start and don't know what to do. So they go, hey, I'm colorblind. I'm not the problem. True, you're not the problem. However, you are benefiting from a system that is the problem. And it doesn't mean that, white privilege doesn't mean that you didn't work hard. It means that somebody else worked 10 times as hard as you to get half of what you got. <laughs> and if you're okay with that, then you're racist. Right, right. That's, I mean, that's truly what it is. <laughs> right, right. Right, I think the colorblind thing too also speaks to, you have to see color right. to recognize that there is a problem. Right. Yeah. Now you can love everyone as, as be, you know, beings of God, but to be colorblind is to not recognize that, as you said, there are these issues. And, and, and again, along those lines to say, well, I'm not racist, which is that quote unquote neutral stance, which I stood on for a long time. And it's the understanding that you're either racist or you're fighting against right. and, and, and racism I, I and racist policies. Yes, perfectly put. Small caveat to that is, is it's not even about racist versus, it's not even about racism. It's about oppression. Like that's, the, that's the subject of what we're talking about. Yeah. And if you are being silent, if you're not going hard in the paint for a system that might help somebody's daughter not be raped or some, somebody's son not be killed or somebody's family to be able to aggrandize and get a small business loan. If you're not going hard against that system, then you like the system. Then you're, then, then you're, 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 um, your arts and crafts available on Etsy are more important than that 12 year old's human rights. And that says a lot about you. And that's 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 the rea that's the reality of the situation. Now that you know, here's the thing: I've I've had a lot of white friends call me up and apologize. I said, "You got nothing to apologize about. You got nothing to apologize about." Now that we've had the conversation, if you don't do something, you got something to apologize. Now that you have this, now that you know the severity of the situation, that that, that this has been a humanitarian crisis for God, who knows? Who knows? Now that you know that. And if you don't do anything from that point in time, then you can apologize to an empty phone because I'm not answering the call. <laughs> and that's kind of where we're at, you know? And um, 
how much pushback have you got like from your white friends to be like dude like wow. and not even to say that um you're uh, you know demanding that they all do something but no. what are some of the responses that you're getting and you're just like scratching your head like what fucking world are we living well, in i've approached everybody the same way i approached you i just let them know how bad it was affecting me how bad it was affecting my family how bad it was affecting people i know how how like if you can't listen to the oppressed voice, you have to ask yourself some questions. And that's, that's really what it is. And so like, I've gotten pushback even just from telling people how bad it was for me or how bad it is for me. <laughs> or, I, or somebody will hit me up and I go on Instagram and I'll go, Hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. I'm like, yeah, kind of trying to make sure this humanitarian crisis is, you know, like, and like I look at their page and they're like trying to sell skinny bunny tea and shit. I'm like, <laughs> so Black Lives Matter to you or nah? What's up? You like so tea is more important than that right now? Like literally, there are if you look, look at the news, there are black people dying who are dying from white supremacists at police at at, um, at rallies about yeah. not killing black people. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty fucking bold. That's I think pretty that's, bold. I think that's been one of the things for me that has been so, you know, eye-opening is that here we are, like you would think, it's, it just speaks to the arrogance of some of the police force. Like you would think that they would be on their best behavior for the, for the peaceful protest and they are just like, fuck you. And use yeah. like such incredible force. And again, it's yeah. like I'm finally seeing this for the first time. Like, yeah. holy fuck. That is their best behavior. Trust me. That's the, those are their best practices. We just get we just get the worst of it. They just police our neighborhoods more. So that is how they act. That's how they always act. Like, like what I, once again, what I said, the policing mentality came from citizens having power over property of the human beings. And they've never lost that. And, and they look at the rest, they look at themselves as predators. If you look at their training videos, please. And the rest of the world, the problem with looking at yourself as a predator, then everybody, everybody else is prey, right? <laughs> Which is what you see now. They, they spray first, ask questions later. They shoot first, you know, ask questions later. They run you over with a car first and honk later. It's, it's, um, I don't, I, it's, I, I think a lot of people are looking at their country and going, God, what, what the, what, what the fuck, what country is this? What where the did, fuck? How, where right? did I wake up in? Yeah. I was born in this country. I know. You feel me? Like, this is not new. Like, this is not new to us. Like, we're so decent. Listen, you know, but all oh, there's two Americas. There's not two Americas. There's one America, and there's a bunch of people living in a, in a dimension that feels like Afghanistan. 40 million of us. I don't give a fuck if it's Jay-Z. He puts on the wrong outfit, gets in the wrong car, he's done. Could be, right? He's got just as much chance, Will Smith, just as much chance to get him taken. Just as much chance. They don't care. If they recognize him, oh, shit, it's Will Smith. Leave him alone. But that's happened to me where they recognize me halfway through beating my ass. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
with a gun to my head. You see what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's not. <laughs> Take us back to that experience. This is so many of them. I mean, my first introduction with the police, I was eight years old. And I was playing uh, hide and go seek. Where were you living? Were you in Austin at this point? I was in Austin, but we were in Kerrville, Texas. We were at a, a wildlife preserve, a reserve. And um going to go see the animals the next day. And I was with my brothers and my cousin, and we were um, playing hide and go seek. And I was in the bushes with my, um, my little brother, Ian, and uh, hiding in the bushes. The next thing I know, we saw these red and blue super bright lights and a flashlight and people yelling and grown men yelling at us to come out come out stop hiding and that you know come out with our hands up and the whole thing and we did and we didn't know what was going on and we're like i'm eight you know and um they started interrogating us and i didn't we didn't have any answers <laughs> like the oldest one of us was 12 and uh they, they handcuffed him and put him in the car because they, they just didn't believe we were policing the proximity to. Um, they were they were policing our their discomfort of our proximity to them and other white people, right? And they kept saying, "What are you guys doing here?" And like just that kind of stuff, like that. And like I damn near pissed in my pants. And like my brother kind of was like, you know, kind of took control. He had to, he had to grow up in an instant, like ten years old, and he said. You know, let let me let, let us talk to our parents. They're here. Let us talk to our parents. And so they handcuffed him and they handcuffed me. And I, I like started like, like I got really afraid. And I was like kind of moving around. And so the cop shoved my face against the wall. And I just remember like I just froze. Like I just broke. You know, like I don't I had like an out of body experience. Like like this child abuse. And the cuffs were too small for me, so they 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 fell off and um, he's like, stop squirming, stop squirming, you know, and he, he put the cuffs back on They fell off again. So then he, he cuffed my forearms and he drug us through the lobby and he grabbed my little brother by the shirt and they drug us through the lobby and, um, you know, I had I'd only seen handcuffs and movies, you know, and I was thinking like, "Fuck, what do we do? Like, what do we, what do we do? Like, we was this some curfew thing? Like, what, what did my parents call them? Like, what happened?" So we get to my parents' room, and um, my parents are my mom's freaking out. My dad stays pretty calm. He's from Texas, so he knows what's going on. My mom's from New York, so it's a little different. And your dad's an attorney, uh, is that right? At the time, he was. <laughs> at the time, he was. Uh, Assistant Attorney General of Texas at the time. And the cops roughed up his kids and arrested them for playing hide and go seek. He had to, as the Assistant Attorney General of Texas, he couldn't even get angry. He had to go very calmly and get our older cousin from the car and negotiate his release. Because the cops were saying that we were breaking into cars. His eight year old son. 
breaking in the car. Um, when I was 12, I was playing outside of my school and my friends left. And then these two cops rolled up on me and pulled a gun out of me. Said I need to be taught a lesson. When I was, when I was 13, I was playing in front of my front lawn. And these cops drove up and asked me and my brother what we we're doing there. And so we live here. So let's see some ID. I go, I'm 13, I don't have ID. <laughs> and then my brother's like, what the fuck? And he runs in the house and tells my mom, I might have been 12. I might have actually been 12 at that point too. And then uh, she comes out screaming and the cops are getting out of the car to come get me. Like they're coming to get me. For what? For being in my front lawn. When I was... 16, I got, I got arrested, not arrested, I got handcuffed and put on my car for driving past a school bus um, whose stop sign popped out as I was driving past it. Um, when I was 24, I got hospitalized and put in, and, and I was beaten and pepper sprayed and tased and hospitalized for, um, for jaywalking. And then the cameras showed that I wasn't jaywalking. I was standing in between two parked cars. And they just didn't like, they didn't like the fact that I asked an officer for his badge number after he shoved me three times. Well, this might be a good time to talk about the talk that white families don't have to have with their kids, but black families do. Right. So after after I was after the cops, you know, arrested us when I was eight, the plane I didn't go see. My mother realized that she was going to have to have the talk a lot sooner than she thought, and um, every family has every black family has to have this talk. And <clears throat> and it's it's. I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how, how, like, I'm thinking about how I would, I would have that talk about it with my kids. You know, I don't, I don't understand. But you got to basically tell your kids that the world hates them. You can't say, some people hate you. You have to say, everybody hates you. Everybody hates you. And they hate you so much that they might kill you. They hate you so much that they might hurt you. They hate you so much that they might kidnap you. They hate you so much that even the even the people that you like, those cops you like, that you you know you want to grow up to be a cop, and you play cops and robbers, and you think the cops are the heroes. Well, neither one of them are the heroes for us because they the cops are sometimes as bad as the robbers. And well, and then like my mom, I had this conversation with my mom the other day, and she's like, "You you kept asking for for months. Are all cops going to hurt me?" Are all cops going to hurt me, right? Because I had bruises on my face. And what's this bringing up for you? Yeah. <laughs>
Just that no kid deserves that, man. Like, is this maybe you're a kid? You don't fucking deserve. You don't deserve that conversation to happen. You don't deserve that police beat the shit out of you or rough you up or arrest you and interrogate you from the time you're eight years old. You just don't fucking deserve it. It happens to every single one of us. Like, there's not one person. There's not one person. Not one person I know who's black who hasn't had something like that happen. Like some of us have had it worse than others. Obviously, look at George Floyd. Obviously, look at Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice. And Trayvon wasn't killed by the police, but he was killed by a policing mentality. Like, what are you doing here? There's a neighborhood. What's he supposed to do? He's fucking 15 years old. He's walking to the store. So it, it just brings up like... It's just that we don't have a word for it, man. We don't have a word for it yet. Like, you you know what an anti-Semite is. You know what the Holocaust was. You know what genocide is. You know what all these things are. We don't have a word for the atrocity that's been done to us for over 400 years, probably until about 90 seconds ago. And it's just frustrating to sit, sit around and try to have debates with people about the nuances of syntax. Mm. Because you're like, you're just not trying to have the conversation. You're just not trying to have the conversation that children are fucking dying. Children are dying. Children are being traumatized by police. Like, I'm traumatized. Like, every single time something like that happens, like, a, like, a, like an execution happens. Or a mistaken murder, or a or a or a, a pre uh, premeditated murder, or whatever the case is, an assault, anything like that happens, and it's national news. I have so much trouble even watching it because I just go into this traumatized. I go back to the eight-year-old little boy who's just afraid of the world and afraid, and like, you know, I had nightmares for years. My mom reminded me, like. It's it's just too much. It's too much to ask of children. It's too much to ask of parents. It's too much to ask of families. It's just too much. I think 10, 15 years from now, if this goes the right way, and I hope it does, I hope it goes the right way. If this goes the right way, we're going to look back and be like, how the fuck did we ever let that happen for so long? I hope. I really hope. Because, once again, where does crippling oppression lead? Where does it go? Where does it go? What's, what's, what's next for the American Negro? What do you have in store for us now? You're already publicly executing us. So what's next? What you got for us? Well, thanks for... So that, thanks for the, the, yeah, the conversation is just, it happens across America every day. You have to have the conversation over and over and over and over again with your kids. And you have to tell your kids, the world hates you. The world hates you. The world hates you. The world hates you. Son, I love you. Your family loves you. But the world hates you. And they will take your life at any moment. So please, 
this is how you have to act when somebody comes at you. This is how you have to act if an officer comes up. You have to make sure your hands are not in your pockets. You have to make sure you don't have a hoodie on. You have to make sure you take your hat off. You have to make sure you look you look them in the eye, but not for too long. You have to. It's just all these fucking rules. All these rules that you have to live by at eight years old. So it's demoralizing. It's it's honestly demoralizing. To tell you the truth. 